Welcome to the Tech Meme Ride Home for Friday, August 11th, 2023. I'm Brian McCullough. Today, a major regulatory breakthrough is going to open the floodgates for self-driving taxis in California. Two different stories about dealing with the China restrictions, including one U.S. company that is directly benefiting, and Meta's AR ambitions, which decidedly are not. And of course, the weekend long-read suggestions. Here's what you missed today in the world of tech. I've been following something for a couple of weeks, but didn't want to tell you about it until it actually happened. And it has happened after a contentious six-hour public hearing. The California Public Utilities Commission has agreed to let Waymo and Cruz operate driverless cabs 24-7 throughout San Francisco. Quoting The Verge, The California Public Utilities Commission, CPUC, voted 3-1 to one in favor of allowing the two companies to operate their vehicles at any hour of the day throughout the city of San Francisco while charging for rides. Today is the first of many steps in bringing AV transportation services to Californians, CPUC Commissioner John Reynolds said at the end of the hearing. Reynolds, a former general counsel at GM-backed Cruise, had recused himself from previous votes, but said the passage of time allowed him to vote on today's resolution. The commissioners urged the companies to address problems raised by San Francisco officials and residents about AVs blocking roads, causing traffic jams, and impeding emergency vehicles. If there are further reports of incidents, the CPUC could vote to limit the number of vehicles allowed on the road or revoke the company's permits altogether, Commissioner Darcy Houck said. A broad range of opinions have been presented to us by the public regarding the resolutions before us today, Houck added. I do not take this decision lightly, end quote. Currently, the companies only offer limited service. The vote in favor of the companies essentially gives Robotaxis full access to the peninsula and its residents. They are now able to operate similarly to Uber or Lyft, travel anywhere in the city at any time of day, and charge money for their rides. The six-and-a-half-hour hearing featured a variety of voices, many of them from the disabled community, speaking to the pros and cons of autonomous ride-hailing services, Residents opposed to the companies spoke of malfunctioning cars breaking down in the middle of intersections, streets already teeming with enough motor vehicles, and robot cars allowed to run roughshod throughout the city. Supporters praise the vehicles as safer than human drivers and the potential boon for disabled riders who currently lack adequate transportation options. After hours of public testimony, those opposed to the vehicles appeared to have a slight edge over the supporters, though hundreds spoke for both sides. A running theme was skepticism of big tech companies that don't have the best interests of the city of San Francisco at heart. Opponents also dismissed the autonomous vehicles as tools of the surveillance state, festooned with cameras and other sensors that could be handed over to law enforcement upon request. For months, San Francisco city officials have been pleading with the state to delay the vote, citing a spate of incidents in which autonomous vehicles have stopped traffic, blocked buses, or obstructed emergency vehicles. The city's transit agency and fire and police departments have all logged complaints with the CPUC, calling for the commission to reconsider the plan for 24-7 service. But the CPUC said that Waymo and Cruz have met all their obligations laid out in the state's regulatory framework covering autonomous vehicle testing and commercial operation. Quote, we must base our decision on this data and evidence and on the proper scope of our authority. Alice Bushing Reynolds, president of the commission, said, we do expect the AV companies to engage with first responders, with law enforcement, with city officials, and we do expect actions to address concerns. End quote. Scott. 
Skydio is shutting down its consumer drone business and plans to expand its enterprise offerings instead. This comes after it raised a $230 million Series E at a $2.2 billion valuation just this past February. So am I sharing this because this is bad news? Another example of a company that raised big recently but has to retrench? Well, actually, this is a success story about a company that has actually benefited from all of the China tech bans we've been talking about recently. Quoting TechCrunch, Beginning today, the firm will no longer be selling its Skydio 2 Plus starter, sports, cinema, or pro kits, although it will continue to offer the Skydio 2 Plus Enterprise Kit to business customers. Skydio also promises to continue supporting those customers who have already purchased a drone. That includes offering vehicle repairs and other support-related warranties. The company says it will also stock batteries, propellers, and other accessories, quote, for as long as we can. Skydio is closing up its consumer wing as it expands support for various enterprise offerings. The firm has established 1,500 clients that also include various public service applications. Our drones are making the core industries that our civilization runs on, public safety, transportation, energy construction, and defense, safer and more efficient, founder Adam Bry writes in a post outlining the news. And it's becoming more and more clear every day that we need trusted, secure drones to meet these critical applications. The impact we're having with our enterprise and public sector customers has become so compelling that it demands nothing less than our full focus and attention, end quote. The Bay Area-based Skydio has seen a massive boost as drone giant DJI has landed on the wrong side of various government bans amid rising U.S.-China tensions. It's been a large driver in domestic security adoptions of its system. Government contracts are understandably an extremely enticing model, maybe more so than consumer sales. And besides, DJI continues to dominate that world, end quote. But here's another example of tech attempting to navigate the recent China angle. The information says that Meta plans to build only a thousand units of its first-gen AR glasses, which we're expecting sometime in 2024. But the reason that they will only produce that limited number might be because of its use of silicon carbide in the lenses, which requires assembly in the U.S. for, you guessed it, quote, Meta Platforms plans to build only around 1,000 units of the first generation of its augmented reality glasses due out next year, a tiny batch that it will just use for internal development and to demonstrate the device to the public. And yet, to build the glasses, Meta is using a convoluted and expensive arrangement involving factories in China, Taiwan, and the U.S. That's due in part to Meta's decision to experiment with a special pricey compound inside the lenses that, because of government rules, can't easily be exported out of the U.S. As a result, Meta has to assemble the lenses in the U.S. while other parts of the glasses, the wristband that controls it, and a wireless computing pack that acts as the brains of the device are made in China and Taiwan, respectively. Meta's decision to only release the first generation of its AR glasses as an in-house product was itself a cost-cutting move, as the information has previously reported. Still making the first generation version at all won't come cheap. This version, internally codenamed Orion, will use a compound called silicon carbide in its lenses, according to two people with direct knowledge of the matter. Silicon carbide allows a wider image to be projected into a lens than glass, which is what companies such as Microsoft and Magic Leap have used in past AR products. That means users can see more digital imagery when light is projected into the material because of the compound's superior optical properties, but it's much more expensive than glass. Because the military uses silicon carbide in radars and sensors, 
The U.S. government has controlled its export for decades. Meta is buying the silicon carbide from Wolfspeed, one of the world's largest producers of the material, which makes wafers based on the compound at a production facility in New York. The wafers are first sent to a facility in Sunnyvale, California, where another company applied materials processes them and places them into lenses. Then the lenses are shipped to a facility in Washington State for final assembly into the frames of Meta's AR glasses. A WolfSpeed spokesperson said the company couldn't confirm whether it was a supplier to Meta. Applied Materials didn't reply to a request for comment. Meta could have applied for a license to export silicon carbide wafers to China for final assembly, but the federal government likely wouldn't have approved it given recent tensions between Washington and Beijing. The whole concept of exporting material for commercial or civilian use in China is over, at least for now, said Jonathan Larkin, founder of Larkin Trade International, a Beijing-based trade compliance consulting firm. As a result, Meta had to figure out a way to make and assemble the lenses and frames in the U.S., even as it makes other components for the glasses in China and Taiwan, end quote. Real talk. 52% of men over 40 experience some form of ED between the ages of 40 and 70. But it's always been a taboo topic. Thankfully, HIMSS is changing that by providing affordable access to ED treatment all online. HIMSS provides access to clinically proven generic alternatives to Viagra and Cialis, up to 95% cheaper with options as low as $2 per dose. The process is simple and 100% online. No uncomfortable doctor's visits. Answer a series of questions on their site and a medical provider will determine the right treatment option. If prescribed, your medication ships directly to you for free and in discreet packaging. No insurance needed. Pay one low price for your treatments, online visits, ongoing shipments, and provider messaging. Hims has hundreds of thousands of trusted subscribers, so if ED is getting you down, it's time to change that. Start your free online visit today at hymns.com slash ride. That's H-I-M-S dot com slash ride for your personalized ED treatment options. Hims.com slash ride. Prescriptions require an online consultation with a healthcare provider who will determine if appropriate. Restrictions apply. See website for details and important safety information. Subscription required. Price varies based on product and subscription plan. When you go through airport security, there's one line where the TSA agent checks your ID and another line where a machine scans your bag. The same thing happens in enterprise security, but instead of passengers and luggage, it's end users and their devices. These days, most companies are pretty good at the first part of the equation where they check user identity, but user devices can roll right through authentication without getting inspected at all. In fact, 47% of companies allow unmanaged, untrusted devices to access their data. That means an employee can log in from a laptop laptop that's had its firewall turned off and hasn't been updated in six months or worse, that laptop might belong to a bad actor using employee credentials. Collide finally solves the device trust problem. Collide ensures that no device can log into your Okta-protected apps unless it passes your security checks. Plus, you can use Collide on devices without MDM, like your Linux fleet, contractor devices, and every BYOD phone and laptop in your company. Visit collide.com slash ride to watch a demo and see how it works. That's K-O-L-I-D-E dot com slash ride. Time for the weekend long read suggestions. First up, the title of this Verge piece kind of sums it up. Where have all the fitness bands gone? Quote, It all started with an innocent Vergecast hotline question. The gist was, What are some screenless wearables that offer health tracking in the vein of the Fitbit Flex, 
but aren't as expensive as the $300 Aura Ring. Not a single good answer came to mind. For better or worse, the simple fitness bands of just a few years ago aren't really a thing anymore. The aforementioned Fitbit Flex and other bands like Jawbone Up or Misfit Ray don't really have modern-day analogs. The closest thing I've seen these days are devices like the Amaze Fit Band 7, the Fitbit Inspire 3, the Garmin Vivo Smart 5, and Xiaomi's Mi Band 7. The problem is, they've all got screens. The only answer I had for our caller was the equivalent of an apologetic shrug because, unfortunately, the expensive Aura Ring was the best option. That or cobbling together a bunch of half measures that would be more expensive than the Aura Ring. The whole experience left me unsettled. When I started wearing fitness trackers in 2014, I was a diehard Fitbit Charge fan with no lack of alternatives. These days, I can barely find any interesting ones to review. It left me wondering, where have all the fitness bands gone? End quote. Read the whole thing because it's interesting, but TLDR, it seems that screenless fitness bands have largely been replaced by either more powerful and cheaper smartwatches or wearables with pricey monthly subscriptions. I guess there's just not enough margin in just selling a $100 fitness band. Next, I've been waiting for someone to do this. Someone had to do it at some point. This probably even isn't the first time it's been done, just the first time I've seen it. And by it, I mean someone eventually making the case that generative AI and crypto are potentially complementary technologies. I don't have an opinion on this, just presenting the argument. Quoting Coindesk. Blockchain, an open-source globally distributed ledger, offers us a new place to store all that data where it might finally be independent of third-party companies that place profit incentives over consumer privacy. Yet data on the blockchain is publicly available by default, which is not ideal for most of our information. This transparency is causing many of us to think critically, perhaps for the first time, about what types of personal data we want to exist on the internet and how we should renegotiate Web2's social contracts that have allowed centralized platforms like Facebook and Twitter to own our data in exchange for services. That's where artificial intelligence could come in. In an ideal future, third-party companies don't track and analyze our data, AI does. Let's imagine in this ideal scenario that we understand well enough how AI learning models work, and therefore trust them to develop insights about who we are while tracking digital provenance and verifying the credibility of our information. Sounds great, right? But unfortunately, most new AI use cases are still experimental, and Nobody can predict success. As happens with new technologies, the true capacities of AI and blockchain are currently getting lost in hyperbole, misunderstandings, and fear, uncertainty, and doubt. We spoke to several data experts and Web3 insiders to better understand where AI and Web3 might successfully converge to create consumer-friendly solutions for verification, ownership, and creativity, end quote. In fact, the cases they make are in the areas of news verification copyright and intellectual property protection, new kinds of smart contracts, and interactive NFTs. Look, I said I don't have an opinion on this. I'm just sharing. As we've been covering the streaming wars, it's become clearer that the golden era, or at least the gold rush era of television is over. But that might be more true than you thought, because there's a very simple bottleneck that's coming down the pike that could wreck our ability to binge. Quoting Vulture, One of the hottest shows on streaming this summer isn't some critically adored masterpiece or a bold new statement by an international auteur. Nope, the warm weather winner this year might just be the new-to-Netflix reruns of Suits, a basic cable drama that lasted nine seasons and produced well over 100 episodes during its USA Network run. In other words, exactly the kind of decade-spanning hit the streaming giant has helped make all but obsolete. 
While Netflix loves acquiring older shows with hefty episode libraries, think Grey's Anatomy or Seinfeld, when it comes to original content, it can be a little more, shall we say, promiscuous. Lots of relationships, little long-term commitment. And because so many other platforms have followed its lead, even successful series on streaming now regularly disappear in as little as three years and typically leave behind no more than a few dozen episodes. They're literally not making shows like they used to, and that's a big problem. It's not that there wasn't some valid reasoning behind the peak TV model of greenlighting more shows, but then making fewer episodes of them. Research has demonstrated that while established series help prevent people from canceling their subscriptions, flashing new titles are a much more effective way to get them to sign up in the first place. So if you're a streamer whose only goal is to get as big as possible, as quickly as possible, quote, All that matters is the new and shiny, says one exec who's worked for both streamers and linear platforms. There's no weight put behind making shows that keep people invested in coming back because all they wanted to say was, we've got X amount of subscribers this quarter, end quote. Throw in the fact that many streaming shows have production budgets on par with modest feature films, and you end up with a TV ecosystem in which genuinely big hits such as Prime Video's Jack Ryan and Netflix's Never Have I Ever signed off for good this summer, having produced just 30 and 40 episodes respectively. For the most part, Netflix and other streamers haven't really seen much downside to not building shows with sizable libraries because they've been able to simply license those kinds of shows from other parts of the TV ecosystem. After all, until just a few years ago, basic cable networks were still cranking out a healthy number of original series with binge-friendly episode counts. Suits was still airing new episodes until fall 2019. Similarly, as recently as 2018, the broadcast networks could still be counted on to collectively launch at least a few new five- to six-season warhorses every season, further ensuring the nation's strategic sitcom and procedural reserves remained well-stocked and available for purchase by content-hungry streamers. But the big four broadcasters have cut way back on scripted shows in recent years and rarely make 22 episodes of all but their biggest hits, while The CW, which once made hundreds of millions selling its angsty dramas to Netflix, has been reduced to importing shows from Canada. And on the cable network side, networks such as Paramount, USA, TNT, TBS, A&E, TV Land, and Lifetime have either abandoned high-quality scripted series or make just one or two shows per year. Even the two basic cable brands with substantial scripted portfolios, AMC and FX, make shows mostly for the benefit of their partner streaming platforms and then limit the number of episodes they produce to 10 or fewer per season. Bottom line, the content factories that produce shows like Suits either dramatically downsized or shut down, and streamers haven't picked up the slack by creating similar shows. At some point, platforms are going to run out of quirky, linear shows from the 2000s and 2010s that Zoomers can rediscover on streaming. After years of ignoring this looming catalog crisis, some industry insiders are starting to sound the alarm. If we don't start building the library shows of tomorrow, we're going to regret it, says a content exec who works at a Netflix rival. Indeed, even before the WGA and SAG strikes, the conventional wisdom among industry insiders was that peak TV had finally really, truly peaked, and the number of new shows ordered every year was about to plummet. If that's the case, it means there will be far fewer shiny objects to attract new subscribers and more need for the kinds of old-school shows that keep existing subscribers from hitting that cancel button. You've got to start investing in shows that viewers care about, the exasperated content exec says, and episodic libraries stop churn, end quote. Finally, also from Vulture, though definitely not tech, an interview with the king of comedy podcasts, Paul F. Tompkins. If you don't know Paul F. Tompkins, I feel sad for you, son. But let's put it this way. There are only three celebrities I'd be afraid to meet in person because I'd fangirl out way too much. Those three would be Bob Dylan, Patrick Stewart, and Paul F. Tompkins. 
So that shows you the league I put him in. And I actually know people in the comedy community in LA who know him. I've been offered the chance to meet him, but I'm legit afraid. Anyway, the whole profile is great. It goes deep into podcasting. And for no particular reason, I'll share with you this little nugget of life advice from probably the funniest man on the planet. Quote, there's a thing that I call the tyranny of the template, which is when you think you've figured out this is what I do, and it goes like this, and then you start trying to just refill that template over and over again, and you're like, I hate doing comedy. I'm putting myself in a box, and that's why I'm angry at it. But I'm in control of the box. I'm the one who's building the box, and so it can be whatever I want it to be. But I have to remind myself of that, because when you get into a groove with a template, you're like, this is great. Then after a while, when you've kind of learned that thing, it becomes boring and you don't want to do it anymore. I have to be vigilant about that, because I can talk myself into thinking, I don't like doing this thing anymore, when in reality, it's that I don't like the way I'm doing it right now, end quote. No weekend bonus episodes this weekend. Go out and touch grass. Enjoy the weather if you can. Or, you know, football's back, baby. Talk to you on Monday.